in the morning. When you want the news, you need the front page every hour on the press box. Nothing's riding on this except the uh, First Amendment, the Constitution, freedom of the press, and maybe the future of the country. Not that any of that matters. And now, the news. The front page is brought to you by Bonkers Comedy Club at the Suncoast. The Suncoast Hotel and Casino is the place to eat, drink, and laugh. Check out Bonkers Comedy every Saturday night with shows at 7 and 9.30. Draymond Green is stepping away from the Warriors. He held a press conference over the weekend, apologized for punching Jordan Poole in the face at practice. I'll read a couple of quotes from Draymond Green. He said, I was wrong for my actions. It took place on Wednesday. For that, I've apologized to my team, and I've apologized to Jordan. There is a huge embarrassment that comes with that, not only for myself, with the the own committing the action, but the embarrassment that Jordan has to deal with, the team has to deal with, the organization has to deal with, and his family Green, on stepping away from the Warriors, said, I'm going to continue to stay away as I've been away and continue to do work on myself, but also just give guys space. There hasn't been a date set for when Draymond Green would come back to the team. And by the way, if you missed it, Draymond Green punched Jordan Poole in the face at practice. Last week, the video was leaked to TMZ, so we all got to see him punch uh, Jordan Poole in the face. I do want to make one point about this that is honestly a side note to the entire story, but I do. I, I it was refreshing to me to see an athlete actually apologize. Draymond Green actually apologized for what he did. We so often, and Deshaun Watson's the recent one that stuck in my mind. So often we get apologies that are, "I'm sorry, you're offended." I'm sorry you feel the way you do about what I did. So often we get apologies where people don't take any sort of accountability, don't show any understanding of what they did wrong and any remorse about what they did. I know it's still a side note, but I did enjoy that Draymond Green actually gave an apology where he seemed to understand why he was apologizing. Of course he understood why he was apologizing. We all watched it. That's the difference. He had no choice. And I'm going to give him all the credit that you're going to give him because he also had opportunities in that press conference to deflect or to talk about why or this or that. And he basically took all of those and threw it to the side and said, this isn't the time for that. This is the time for me to apologize and for me to take responsibility. So good going on him for that but what it took to get that tyler was an athlete who could have had assault charges filed against him he didn't punch jordan Poole at practice he walked up and gave him a full-on sucker punch and that is the sort of thing that can break a team and there are a couple things that are remarkable to me about this first of all the fact that that video made it out public this organization is done with Draymond Green. And it doesn't make it out if that video is something that they want buried. If they want it buried, it gets buried. Someone in that organization in a powerful place is done with Draymond Green's act. And secondly, what was the last time we saw this team? We saw them winning the championship. (laughs) This is not like an organization in turmoil. This is a man in turmoil in Draymond Green who realizes that 
the end is not that far away. Jordan Poole is the future for this team. I don't know what the history with, between these two guys is, but I think Draymond Green and the Warriors can both see that the light is fading at the end of this tunnel. Okay, so that, I mean, that's the interesting part to me is where did the leak come from? And you're basically, you're saying it came from somebody with some level of power that doesn't want Draymond Green on the Warriors anymore. Do you think it was just the video guy who doesn't like Draymond? Because if that were the case, that guy would already be out of a job. The Warriors are doing this whole song and dance about how they're going to do a full investigation. Cool. I hope they bring in OJ once he's done finding the real killers. You know, he kept squirting through there and... The Ravens beat the Bengals 19-17 to last night. Justin Tucker kicked the game-winning field goal as time expired. Uh, Adam, the Bengals should have just taken the points, right? They shouldn't have gone for it. They should have kicked the field goal on uh, fourth and short inside the 10. Arg, no. Uh, <laughs> tell you what, man. We're, hold on. Were you cheering for the Bengals to win that game 17 to 16? I had Cincinnati money line. Yes. Well, okay. <laughs> no, I, like, from the analytics perspective, yes. John Harbaugh basically got bullied into taking the points and going up 16 to 10. Um, no, what I'm what I'm really upset about is that Zach Taylor being a horrendous coach makes analytics look bad, right? Like the Cincinnati Bengals, when it was tied at 10, going for a touchdown on fourth and one and running what looked like the JV version of the Kansas City shovel pass sets the whole idea back because the play call is so bad that you forget that it was actually the right decision. Uh, on the Ravens side of this, they ended up winning this game, but they had lost two previous games by blowing double-digit leads. They actually did blow a double-digit lead in this one before coming back to win. Do you believe there's anything to that, or is that just sort of weird? It's a small sample size and it's football, or do you think there's actually an issue with the Ravens when they go up big that they're going to always be in danger of losing? There's no issue with the Ravens. And prior to this game, the Baltimore Ravens in their first four games, despite being two and two, had trailed for a total of 14 seconds. They blew multiple three score leads. These are the sorts of things that can happen when the variance of analytics goes against you, right? And we saw that in the Buffalo game for John Harbaugh. If they go and kick a field goal and go up 23-20, Buffalo's gonna go down the field and score a touchdown, the whole thing's gonna be over. So if you look at this and say, well, you know, they should have just taken the points. Look at what happened this week. They took the points. Yeah, they took the points. And if Cincinnati had been smart enough to run another minute off the clock before they scored that touchdown, taking the points would have lost them the game. Do you want to go? Or? Oh, you can go. I don't want to. Okay. More fun analytics decisions. Uh, the Chargers beat the Browns 30 to 28. Brandon Staley and the Chargers went for it on fourth and one from their own 46-yard line when they led by two with a minute 57 to go. Cleveland had no timeouts left, so a conversion on that fourth and one would have led to the Chargers kneeling the clock out. However, Herbert threw an incompletion, and Cleveland got the ball right there at the 46. They attempted a 54-yard field goal. That was no good. Uh, ben Baldwin's fourth down decision bot gave the Chargers a uh, 11% added win probability by going for it. 11% is a massive number in win probability decisions. But Brandon Staley still got criticized for this, including by his own receiver, who is not playing, Keenan Allen. 
Uh, do you think Brandon Staley is ultimately getting fired by the Chargers and this is going to be cited as a reason why? Keenan Allen needs to shut the hell up until he can stay on the field for a whole season, first of all. <laughs> uh, second of all, I think there is still going to be a fundamental lack of understanding of why Brandon Staley is making these decisions when they go against him. Nobody seems to remember the fact that when the Chargers got off to a hot start last year, all these decisions were going Brandon Staley's way. And no one was talking about how none of this works. The problem for the Chargers was the fact that this team had run 34 times for 238 yards. The Cleveland defense is ripe to be gashed on the ground, and they threw the ball. If they run the game, run the ball, they win the game. And if you want them to punt, you're basically telling them, okay, give the ball back to Cleveland, and you take the ability to win the game out of your own hands. Against a Cleveland team, by the way, that had 213 yards of rushing offense. They were going to be able to move the ball into field goal range no matter what. The interesting part about Keenan Allen is that he he's a wide receiver. He's an offensive player. I would think if there were any players on the field, or not on the field in his case, that you could easily convince, hey, we're going to go forward on fourth and one to end the game, it'd be your offensive players. Like, this isn't uh, Richard Sherman yelling about it. This is an offensive guy. I would think it'd be easy to convince Keenan Allen, hey, in fourth and ones, we're going to put the ball in Justin Herbert's hands. We're going to put the ball in your hands when you're out there. That's how we're going to win the game, not punt it away and hope the defense gets a stop. Against a Cleveland team that already had 28 points in the game. Like, this was not a situation where the Chargers defense was playing so well that you look at it and say, oh, well, you got to give the defense a chance to do this, right? No, they were playing terribly. So, yeah, you absolutely go for that. You have an offense that on the day gained 465 yards. They just happened to fail one time going for one, where when they get the first down, they just kneel the whole thing out. You sense any give up in the locker room? Hell no. What kind of questions that, Phil? Here's some breaking news. Uh, the first... Fired coach of the season. The Panthers have fired Matt Rule. Uh, they went and got Baker Mayfield in the offseason. Hasn't worked out very well. So Matt Rule is out in Carolina after five weeks. I have the receipts on this. Go back to the broadcast that I was doing yesterday afternoon. And I watched J.C. Horn with a chance to make a tackle on Juwan Jennings that would have prevented a first down for San Francisco just basically whiff on a little shoulder tackle and Juwan Jennings run for another 30 yards and I said at the time this is a team trying to get its coach fired and they succeeded <laughs> Matt Rule did his part too kicking multiple field goals down by two scores that made it a two score game but Matt Rule was given up on by his players. Uh, he showed nothing in the entirety of his time in Carolina that suggested he should continue on for the rest of the year. Yeah, one and four start to the season for Carolina. That only one coming over the Saints, and Matt Rule is out already. I don't care about him. Next question. All right, I did want to get to this college football score. Texas beat Oklahoma 49 to nothing. On Saturday, it's the first time Oklahoma has been shut out in any game since 1998. It's the largest margin of victory for Texas over Oklahoma ever. And Oklahoma has now lost three, three straight games, Kansas State, TCU, and Texas. 
Um, Adam, I had this uh, opinion last week for Ed Grain, and I'm curious what your thoughts on it. Nebraska, as a football program, dominant in the 90s that went a little bit into the early 2000s. But then they joined the Big Ten, and they have fallen off the face of the earth, going from one of the best programs in college football to uh, when's the last time they went to a bowl game, like six or seven years ago. They've been very, very bad. Oklahoma, also a Midwestern state. In a few years, they're going to be joining the SEC, where they will not be the best or second best program in that conference. Is Oklahoma about to become the next Nebraska? They have a few years to avoid it, but it's not impossible. And I think this is what we have to look at is the reality of the transfer portal era. It's not necessarily about the brand or the coach or this or that. It's about the money, right? And if Oklahoma has the money, then they'll be able to create an NIL situation where they're not Nebraska. I don't think they're doomed to become Nebraska. I think the brand right now is still pretty strong overall, uh, even though I'm saying it's not the difference. I'm saying that Oklahoma has not fallen as far as Nebraska. All right, coming up next, we'll jump into some Golden Knights as Nick Haig still is not signed. The front page brought to you by Bonkers Comedy Club at the Suncoast. The Suncoast Hotel and Casino is the place to eat, drink, and laugh. Check out Bonkers Comedy every Saturday night with shows at 7 and 9.30. Alex Petrangelo with a bomb from the left point. He scores. Petrangelo, one-time rocket rising over the blocker of John Gillies. Makes it 5-1 Vegas. Live from the Finley Toyota ESPN Las Vegas studios, this is the Press Box with Graney and Bischoff. Featuring Adam Candy. Adam Candy from Legal Sports Report in today for Ed Graney, who is in Kansas City. Uh, the Golden Knights, though, get their season started tomorrow. The preseason is over. And one of the interesting stories, Nick Haig and the Golden Knights have not agreed to a contract yet. Nick Haig is a restricted free agent. Golden Knights uh, only have to offer him a qualifying offer, which is one year $863,000. Nick Hague uh, wants more money than that. However, if Nick Hague is not signed by December 1st, he can't play this season and he would still be a restricted free agent going in the next offseason. He'd be in the exact same scenario he is in right now. Uh, Jesse Granger reported that Nick Hague is asking for less than $2 million on a two-year deal. And if they want to do a three-year deal, less than three million dollars so not exact numbers but maybe 1.5 to 1.8 if it's a two-year deal and maybe 2.5 to 2.8 if it is a three-year deal for Nick Haig and obviously that December 1st date puts a lot of leverage in the hands of the Golden Knights because Nick Haig will want to sign before then otherwise he'll just be in this same spot next year uh, but my question is basically this will the Golden Knights miss Nick Haig, because right now he would be the sixth defenseman, right? It'd be him and Zach Whitecloud as the bottom pair. Ben Hutton is the expected player to fill that role while Nick Haig is unsigned. The seventh and eighth guys are Jake Bischoff and Caden Korzak. And my main question is, are any of those guys going to be good enough that the Golden Knights don't feel like they need to cave and give Nick Haig what he wants? Or... Are they going to struggle at that spot and think, oh, wow, we really need Nick Haig. We better give him what he wants. If this gets to the point where third-pair defense is the question, then 
I think that's actually a good sign for the Golden Knights, right? That means a lot of other things have gone well. That means we have a healthy Mark Stone. That means that we have the front two pairs that are playing a lot better. Like, no, I don't think the performance of Nick Hague or the lack of Nick Hague means anything to the Golden Knights' long-term success. Also, it feels like what Nick Hague is doing is walking up to a bank that was just robbed and asking for them for a pack of 20s. Like, there's no money in the bank. Where, where is this money supposed to come from for the Golden Knights? Uh, Cap Friendly did tweet out yesterday a uh, roster construction that would have the Golden Knights actually carry 20 full skaters, not like they've done in the past. We're like, yeah, we're going to play with 15 today, but actually carry a full 20 skaters uh, and have Nick Haig sign for less than $2 million and still be under the cap. So it is possible that the Golden Knights can make that work with the salary cap. Uh, But I do think he is in a pretty brutal spot because I don't believe the Golden Knights are going to sit here and be, you know, lamenting that they don't have Nick Haig as their sixth defenseman. He's he's better than Ben Hutton, Jake Bischoff, and Caden Korzak, but I don't think that position is going to matter enough that the Golden Knights are the team that have to give in. I think because they're, they've are they got good defensemen, because you can go down and say it's Shea Theodore, it's Alex Petrangelo, it's Alec Martinez, Braden McNabb, it's Zach Whitecloud. Because they have those five guys, whoever the sixth defenseman is, shouldn't matter that much for this team. It shouldn't be that big of a deal if Ben Hutton has to play the whatever, 12 or 13 minutes a night that Nick Haig would be getting. And so to me... The main sort of question that Nick Haig is kind of waiting on is, does somebody get hurt? Because that might be what it takes for him to actually gain some leverage before December 1st rolls around, right? If the Golden Knights go through like two or three injuries at the defenseman position, and all of a sudden you're looking at, okay, Ben Hutton's on the second pair defenseman, right? Then all of a sudden you might be looking at saying, okay, we, we need to go get Nick Haig in here. But otherwise, I just have a hard time seeing where Nick Haig actually gains leverage in this negotiation with the Golden Knights before December 1st rolls around. And I actually see where the Golden Knights front office would come from in this because it's easy to look and say, okay, he wants less than $2 million. So what are we talking about in the difference between that and the 860, right? Are we talking about like maybe $750,000 difference between the teams or between the sides? Yeah, we are, but this is a situation the Golden Knights are going to find themselves in repeatedly with guys toward the end of the roster where if they are spending an extra million here, million there, the way they've built this roster is so top-heavy, they're going to have issues when it comes to building out the roster. This is what happens when you go stars and scrubs, right? They went with stars, and now the scrubs want more, and there's no money for it. It reminds me it's kind of the exact opposite situation, but... The Golden Knights at one point gave Ryan Reeves a contract where the reporting was Ryan Reeves got a three-year offer from another team, and the Golden Knights decided, well, we'll give you the same exact amount of money that team was going to pay you over three years, but we're going to do it in two years, which bumped up his average annual value. And George McPhee was still doing the press conference at the time. He gave a quote along the lines of, well, we've got the cap space, so what's it matter if if we have an extra million dollars spent on Ryan Reeves? They're in the exact opposite spot where what's it matter if we spend an extra million on Nick Haig? It could be the difference. I mean, hell, by the time we get to the trade deadline, maybe it's the difference in who they can actually acquire at the deadline. Or like you said, 
setting a precedent for the next couple of years when guys like Nick Haig say, and listen, Nick Haig is is worth more than the $860,000. They say, hey, I deserve more than that. And the Golden Knights say, sure, but we can't afford to do that. And we didn't do it with Nick Haig, and we're not going to do it with you either or anybody else that comes along because we can't afford that. We need to go with the $860,000 or whatever it is. Now, we just saw Matt Rule as the first head coach fired in the NFL. I'm curious your thoughts on this bold prediction. This is Frank Saravalli who wrote this. He did like a bold prediction story for the NHL season. And he wrote, Golden Knights GM Kelly McCrimmon will be the first general manager fired this season. After six chairs changed hands league-wide last year, it's no secret that owner Bill Foley did a deep dive on McCrimmon's job security after missing the playoffs for the first time, and McCrimmon enters on shaky ground. For the second summer in a row, he was forced to unload a critical piece, Marc-Andre Fleury, Max Pacioretty, for nothing because of poor salary cap management. Do you believe Foley would fire McCrimmon in season? I really don't, but then again, We've seen a coach fired in season by the Golden Knights, so it's not impossible. And to me, if you blow out Kelly McCrimmon, you got to send McPhee with him, do you not? Right. Because and they were a package deal in the first place. So that that's that's the other part of this. Like, I have a hard time seeing them fire McCrimmon in season unless they're just, like, terrible, right? Obviously, if this team gets off to, like, a 1-10-2 and 10 and two start or something like that, and they're just not even close to the playoffs when we get to December – then absolutely, I think you could see McCrimmon gone. But I, they're not, I don't think they're going to be that bad. They're going to be in the playoff hunt. And I don't envision them firing the GM. But then the other part is, you're right. Like, McPhee and McCrimmon, what happened when McCrimmon got promoted to general manager? Bill Foley said in that press conference, none of the responsibilities changed. It was still George McPhee as the top guy in that front office. So firing McCrimmon and only McCrimmon would mean that George McPhee has made Kelly McCrimmon the scapegoat that George McPhee has somehow convinced Bill Foley. It's not my fault. It's this guy's fault. Even though the responsibilities reportedly stayed the same straight from the owner's mouth, stayed the same. I just, yeah, that to me is the interesting part there because I would view, we viewed it as a package this whole time, but it'd be interesting if only McCrimmon went because uh, what is McPhee telling Foley to get McCrimmon as the one that's fired in that scenario? And that would kind of show a split between McPhee and McCrimmon, would it not? Where that we haven't seen any indication of that. We haven't seen right. any indication that George McPhee would be willing to sacrifice Kelly McCrimmon for what purpose to save his own job? Like, George McPhee's going to be able to find a job whether he's here or not. What he did, not only with the Capitals, but what, what he did in year one with the Golden Knights will live forever. And I know Kelly McCrimmon still gets some credit for that, but ultimately, George McPhee is the one who gets the credit for that. So, as much as Foley has shown very little tolerance for losing, I can't see where they would make that move A in season and B without them having a total fall off the cliff. Yeah, after the end of the season, like they missed the playoffs, absolutely. Even if they make the playoffs and lose in the first round, could absolutely see that happening. But I have a hard time seeing it happen in season unless they're just completely awful. All right, coming up next... Mike Gramala joins the show. Bunch formation. Nick Williams in motion. Back to throw Friel. Firing. And the pass is caught, but it's caught short at the one-yard line by Williams. And the Rebels will have to give it up one yard short of pay dirt. You're sitting in the press box with Graney and Bischoff on ESPN Las Vegas. Follow them on Twitter at Ed Graney and Bischoff underscore Tyler. Featuring Adam Candy. 
Joining us now from the Las Vegas Sun is Mike Gramala. UNLV football loss to fall to four and two on the year. Uh, but the bigger news is the status of Doug Brumfield, who left that game uh, with a head injury, potential concussion for Doug Brumfield. Um, do you know anything else about Doug Brumfield's status? And if not, do you expect Marcus Arroyo to give a black and white clear answer as to his status today when he talks to the media? Yeah, I think we'll we'll hope to find out more today when they do their um, weekly press conference. No, I don't expect a, a clear answer, but I think at this point, I mean, we all saw what happened. Like he's he went down, he's holding his head, he wobbles off the field. Like that's he's got a concussion. Um, the question is, I guess, how severe? Uh, how does he go through the the whatever their medical protocols are? Um, when does he come back? Are you going to try to? rush him back to play this week against uh, Air Force on Saturday? Do you give him another week after that and try to get him ready for uh, Notre Dame in two weeks? Or if you want to play it really safe, do you give him the next two games off and then there's a bye week after Notre Dame and then he's got three full weeks before he's, he's got to go again. So, I mean, the question is, you know, the severity and how do they want to, to handle it from here? Mike, as much as we know that Doug Brumfield is the key to this season for the Rebels, Doug Brumfield didn't give up 40 to San Jose State. So <laughs> do we have concerns about the defense coming out of this game, or do you just write it off as, as one game and as a little bit of a weird one because of the fact that they had to go to a backup? I would write it off as a not an anomaly because there are uh, aspects of this defense that can be taken advantage of and can be exploited. So a good offensive team can put up a, a number of points. Um, but, I mean, if you just look around the Mountain West from week to week, you'll see all kinds of good teams playing poorly. You'll see all kinds of bad teams springing upsets. Like, I'm not – I don't think any I don't think any one result should be too worrisome. Bottom line, UNLV, they, they're 4-2. and two. They are way ahead of uh, the track for postseason eligibility. Um, that – the – the concern, I guess, would be to not let that game linger, get Doug Brumfield back and healthy, and your season is still way ahead of, uh, you're still on course, you're still way ahead of the curve. So I would not be too, I would not put too much stock uh, into that one outcome. This stretch here of, of Air Force, Notre Dame, San Diego State, and uh, Fresno State, uh, four in the next four games, can they win any of those games with Cameron Friel if he's the quarterback for all four? If you were to say Doug Brumfield is going to play in those games, I'd say, yeah, they can win one. Friel, I'm not sure. He's not bad. He was the Mountain West uh, Offensive Freshman of the Year. Um, we saw him acquit himself pretty nicely in that game against uh, San Jose State. They didn't score. You know, They only put up seven points, but I don't think it was because of, of bad quarterback play. Uh, I think if you give Cameron Friel the full complement of weapons, if you get Kyle Williams and Jeff Weimer back, and you've got all your receivers, and the offensive line is, is intact. Then I think you've got a chance to, to, to take one of those games. Uh, if you're playing this sort of depleted offense, which they're running out there now, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. They've only got to win one. Like, that's the good thing about going four and two in the first half is, you know, you've only got to win one of these next uh, three games to, or to really cement your uh, a bowl a bowl game at the end of the year. Um, so, yeah, that's the big question. Can Cameron Friel get them one? And that's kind of the spot where 
we have to start asking the question about getting that one, Mike, because otherwise you're looking at at Hawaii and a rivalry game at the end as must wins to get into a bowl. So I'll flip it on its head a little bit here. If before the season we had said, okay, let's just play this out and say UNLV only wins five games, would this still would this season be looked at successfully if Marcus Arroyo and the Rebels win five games? Because it feels like before the year, if you had said UNLV wins five this year, it would have been a pretty good year overall. But the way the year started, it almost feels like it would be a massive disappointment if they don't make a bowl. Yeah, I think it would have been a disappointment probably – uh, if they before the year, if you told said they were going to go five and seven, I think internally they would have been disappointed. Um, but yeah, it's been magna, it's been amplified so much more now that they have a good start because, like you said, those two games are basically free wins. Um, uh, Nevada and Hawaii, those are you, you've got to put those in the bank. So you, they should get the six wins at least. Anything short of that means that something really bad happened. Um, something disappointing happened. Something so, yeah. By by virtue of them outperforming expectations so far, um, not making a bowl game would be a severe underperformance of these new recalibrated expectations. I I don't expect that to happen. Like, though, there's no way they're losing those either of those two games. <laughs> and the question, so I'm I'm sort of saying like, if you want that one extra win for insurance during this stretch that's coming up against you know four pretty good teams. Um, that's basically what it is. You're looking for that one insurance wins that that one insurance game that makes you, you know, not have to put all your eggs in beating Nevada and Hawaii back to back. But yeah, if they don't make it, I, I think pretty much everyone would agree that's that's a disappointing finish. We have Mike Ramallah on this show. We often pick at things that he eats, uh, different things that Mike Ramallah does. But I believe my favorite thing that Mike Ramallah does is when he says. Nevada, because Mike Ramallah finds a way to annoy UNLV fans by not calling them Reno or UNR, but also annoy everybody that lives in this state by saying Nevada instead of Nevada. I, it's spectacular work by you, Mike. It's phenomenal. Well, in print, I have to say UNR um, or I'll get fired. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> verbally, vocally, I'm free to say whatever I please. So. Yes, Nevada. But, but you are aware that the the Nevada Nevada pronunciation debate, right? I am aware of it. Okay, I'm just checking because it, it's one of my favorite things is when you come on here and say Nevada. Um, my other fun things about Mike Ramala. Did you go to another drive-in movie? I did, in uh, over the weekend. You mean in San Jose? Yeah, that's you said you were going to go to drive-in movie theaters or try to go to them when you go on road trips now. Yeah, I did. I did. It was uh, it's it's the same one I went to uh, a few weeks ago when they played at Cal, um, just outside of San Jose. So I did. Uh, what did you see? I saw a movie called Smile, which was pretty bad, um, <laughs> but it's <laughs> but, but still a good time. Uh, what food did you sneak in to eat while you were watching this? I went full concession stand. This oh. time. I did not take anything in, wow. but I got uh, I got a box of Mike and Ikes. I got a churro. I skipped the popcorn and I got a giant soda, which is it had to be at least sixty four ounces. <laughs> did you drink it all? It was it was I I couldn't, and you know, for me, I basically mainline soda. It was the biggest container I've ever seen. 
Wait, were you aware of how big it was when you ordered it? Uh, I was, but I was ordering. Um, I went up to the counter, and they got all the sample cups, you know, lined up. And I saw this one at the end, and I said, oh, my God, like, I have to get that. <laughs> the, the, the sheer spectacle of it, Tyler. I wish I'd taken a photo of it. It was gigantic. Next time I go, I will, I will be sure to get one. Well, this is your go-to drive-in theater, so I look forward to pictures of the This is what I do for fun. Yeah. This, is what I, this constitutes fun for me on the road. It's just finding a gigantic soda. All right. It, was it still fun even though the movie wasn't good? Yes, that's kind of the point. Like, it's almost better if the movie is bad. <laughs> that's right. Uh, I, have a, I also have an important question from you from something we discussed on the show last week. Um, if you, let, let's use this example. If you were at a, an amusement park and you had, let's say, churros or some dessert baked good that you would actually eat, and uh-huh. a cashier asked you, oh, did you already pay for that? Are you saying nope and giving them your money? Or are you saying, oh yeah, I paid for it and leaving without paying for them? Like if if they if it's just an error on their part and they assume I've already paid yes, for it, correct? Uh, I would say no. I think okay. And, you and think? offer to pay for it? Okay, all right. So you're. I have accidentally stolen things before, but it was oh. an honest mistake on my part. What did you accidentally steal? I stole a book from the supermarket. <laughs> How Not old that were long you? ago. Not that long ago. ago. What? That's yeah, it, was, it wasn't that long ago. It was just a few months ago. What did you do? I was, um, I, I didn't grab a hand cart when I went in. So I had, like, my laptop bag over my shoulder, and I was just going to grab one or two things. And then I grabbed this book, and then I grabbed, like, a, a couple more items, and it turned into one of those trips where, okay, now i got, like, 12 things. I'm kind of juggling them in my arms. I can't hold it all. It's like, okay. I opened the front pouch on my laptop carrier. I was like, okay, I'm going to slide the book in here. I'm going to leave it sticking out so that I don't forget to pay for it when I get up there to the the self-checkout. And then I got up there like two minutes later, and I completely forgot to to scan it, and I just walked out with it. (laughs) And are you... um, My bad. Are you haunted by that fact every night? Uh, Not every night. I mean, I felt bad uh, at first. I, I real when I got to my car, I realized it, which is not that far away. Oh, like that's, you, that's really close enough to go back and pay. <sighs> so I mean, I guess I did kind of intentionally steal it because at that point, it's like a two-minute walk to go back and scan it. But you know, the, the sheer thrill of it, also, I can't <laughs> deny that. I might go back for another one. <laughs> well, I've never he felt is so Mike, alive. He is Mike Ramala from the Las Vegas Sun, buying well, not buying, but getting books. From the supermarket. Uh, Mike, as always, we appreciate it. Thanks, guys. All right. We got more tickets to give away. Uh, Not any books to give away, but more tickets. A four-pack of tickets to go see in this moment in concert at the House of Blues on Friday, October 14th. 702-364-1100 is the phone number. If you want to go see in this moment at the House of Blues, we got tickets for you. 702-364-1100. We'll take caller number four at 702-364-1100. might have seen him at your local YMCA arguing with a U-12 coach. Let's tee it up with Adam. Wait, it's a ref segment? Wouldn't it make more sense if it was a golf segment? Whatever. Let's tee it up with Adam Candy. This is where we make Adam Candy, our resident referee, defend the actions of referees across the sports world. 
Um, I, actually, he doesn't always defend him. Actually, let me start with a question for you about baseball with the Joe Musgrove, Buck Walter. check him for sticky stuff. Do umpires have to check a pitcher if the other team's manager requests it? I don't have the baseball rule book in okay. front of me on that one, but I think what you're what you're largely doing is you're just going to let the manager sit out there and be the problem, right? Like you create a bigger problem if you say to Buck Showalter, "No, we won't check him." <laughs> Should okay. My other question on this: Should there be? a punishment to the team that asks for a check if they lose, similar to like football team loses a timeout if they lose a challenge. The punishment is having to be filleted on national television <laughs> for doing something embarrassing, right? Like I think the, the crime creates the punishment all on its own. Okay. All right. In the NFL, we saw a roughing the passer call yesterday against Grady Jarrett of the Falcons. He sacked Tom Brady. Uh, it was one of those like rollover sacks where Brady actually at one point was on top of Jarrett, who was laying on the ground, who then threw him onto the ground off it to the side. Grady Jarrett got called for roughing the passer. It, it, do you have a defense for this? Do you think that there's a reason that was called or was this just simply a bad call? The reason this was called was that the NFL has taken the idea of protecting passers and drilled it into their referees and you had a referee misapply that rule I mean, any way you look at that play it's indefensible there there's no chance that Grady Jarrett should have been flagged because if you look at the way he tackled Tom Brady if he doesn't tackle him exactly as he did Tom Brady gets away from the hit like there was no throwing the body weight on the quarterback there was no extra pick him up and throw him and the defense from the referee in the pool report after the game was tr to try to stick to the absolute letter of the rule, which didn't apply in the situation. It was a terrible call, and I'm sure Raiders fans will be not thrilled to know it was Jerome Boger's crew, which is the same crew that got sat down for the rest of the playoffs after the Cincinnati game last year. The inadvertent whistle. Um, I am. I'm also curious. What do you think of the uh, the body weight rule that you can't? sack a quarterback and uh, land with your body weight on top of the quarterback which seems like something that's going to be often hard to avoid like what do you think of that rule in general is it a necessary rule to have in place for player safety or is it going too far for quarterbacks it's not going too far because what if we watched so far this year we've seen teams that generally are struggling to score because the quarterback play has not been good in the NFL. We don't have 32 good quarterbacks in the NFL. And so the idea that this is our most marketable asset and we need to protect them because not only are they the best players on the field, but they're, they make the entire product go is right. You have to protect the quarterbacks better than you have in the past. But obviously it's going to lead to situations like what you saw where a referee gets too eager with it. I'm I'm just frankly quite surprised that a referee got too eager with it in that situation where that call flipped the entire game. Atlanta had a chance to win that game, and that call took it away from them. So if you are the NFL, 
you're okay with that trade-off, right? You're okay with the two or three times a year there is just a horrible passer or roughing the passer call like this one against Grady Jarrett. You're okay with that trade-off if it saves a couple of quarterbacks from injuries over over the course of a season simply because of, like you said, the marketability of the league and the need to have more good quarterbacks that are healthy and playing. Never forget that it's an entertainment product, right? Never forget that the league has to put something on the field that people want to watch. So the next time you're worried about the roughing the passer rules, remember, we could get a lot more games like that Thursday night game with Matt Ryan and Russell Wilson, who are theoretically <laughs> two of the better quarterbacks in the league and still produced a 12-9 derp fest. What are you talking about? The Dolphins look great. Skyler Thompson. <laughs> Skyler. You have an NFL I, quarterback named Skyler. I genuinely thought that was a creative player. I think it is. Yeah, yeah, no, I think they've had the technology to do that. The blue tent, Jared, you walk in there and you just go to Madden and you hit create a player and they walk out. And that that's what the Dolphins got. Um, in the NBA, uh, preseason's underway, not the regular season just yet. But we did see in a preseason game a technical foul handed out uh, to the uh, Lakers bench because after an Anthony Davis dunk, uh, one of the members, Thomas Bryant, on the bench walked out onto the court. He took about two steps onto the court. wasn't very far, but he got hit with a technical foul. The NBA uh, apparently wants to enforce this rule to keep bench celebrations from spilling onto the floor. Is this going to be a situation where it is called for the first month of the season and then falls off dramatically from there? I think if it's called for the first month of the season, you're not going to have to call it for the rest of the year. Right, this is what was commonly known as the Theo Pinson rule after Theo Pinson from the Mavericks during uh, games against the Warriors was standing on the bench and often standing right on the floor. And Theo Pinson was seeing what color the Warriors were going to wear in the game and matching the color of his shirt to the Warriors jerseys, then standing <laughs> essentially on the court and trying to make it confusing for the Warriors to know who to pass the ball to. So the rule might look a little silly when it's being enforced here early in the year with a guy taking two steps on the court, but the rule comes from a, a necessary place. I actually think that's a great, uh, I, I love this guy. Theo Pinson's a, that's a phenomenal thing to do. Be like, yeah, well, I'm not going to play. Okay. I'm just going to wear the same color as my opponent and I'm going to stand as close to the court as they allow me to do and see if they'll pass me the ball every now and then gain your team of possession. Great and job. And the referees, by the way, asked Theo Pinson to change his shirt before the game, and Theo Pinson said no. <laughs> it's a great role. Phenomenal role. Um, so I, I, it is something I'm curious to see because they're, they're not, as far as you know, right, Adam, they're not going to, like, stop bench celebrations. It's just simply if you come out onto the floor, right? Right, and the, the rule also comes with a verbal warning prior to the technical foul. So it's a second offense that gets you whacked. Yeah, okay. So it should, I don't know. I don't think it'll be anything too ridiculous and you're right it'll probably if it's called pretty strictly in the first month that'll probably get people to figure it out don't walk out onto the floor after somebody gets a dunk so probably will be fine and and it's probably better to get that technical foul in the preseason as opposed to the postseason but there he is our referee uh sometimes defending referees and sometimes saying it's just a horrible call like we all saw